Thank you, friend. And I do sincerely consider you a friend for continuing to listen to The Tully Show. This week's guest, David McRaney, a guy who is not on my radar, maybe never would have been on my radar until somebody suggested I look into him on the Suggest Tully Show guest section of my personal Discord, which is one of the many benefits that comes from, yes, you guessed it, joining patreon.com slash Mike Tully on top of all the pods. It's the only way to be part of our Discord gang. Don't get me wrong. If you want to suggest guests, I'm all ears. You know where to find me. But that's a great place to talk about the Tully show and to talk about Tully time. It's where we do the uh, the horrible movie hangs. They're live video hangs. We watch terrible movies together. I think Kentucky Fried Movie will be next in Discord. One of the many billions of benefits awaiting you exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully patreon.com slash Mike Tully okay you ready to start this show uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude um, I forgot his last name but I've seen him before he's really funny uh, give it up for Mike oh, coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today at the explicit urging of one of your fellow Tully Show listeners, the host of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, the book of the same name, and author of the new book, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. Hello, welcome, thank you for joining us, David McGraney. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, a, uh, a, a listener, uh, the same name as you, reached out and said you absolutely have to. David uh, McGraney? Yeah. No, I'm <laughs> no I'm, that's swear, fantastic. He swears he's not you, so I, I have no <laughs> oh, choice. I meant to change that to... Uh, <laughs> Benedict Humbleblitch yeah, uh, yeah, suggests yeah, yeah. that David McGrady should got a great podcast. You should yeah. come on. You should invite him on. <laughs> Damn burner account. <laughs> and I saw that your book was blurbed by Clive Thompson, who's a new, a new friend of ours as, as of a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Came I love Clive. Great. I met him at a he's I was always a fan. Then I met him. We did a lecture. We both were invited to a event where I did a lecture. He did a lecture. Somebody else did. And I was like, please tell me how to be a person in this world. And ever since then, he's been a great uh, friend and confidant and I love his work. He's one of the most like prolific. I know my process writers ever. And I often go like, am I doing a dumb thing? And he's like, yes, you are. So he's been great. So it was very nice to get a nice blurb from him. Oh, wow. I could use one of those. Cause all I have are the friends who tell me everything is fine. And it's clearly, it's clearly not. We need a Clive uh, in our life that will tell us, yeah, you're that, that little voice in your head that's telling you to back off of that. Listen to it. I I benefit from having Clive in, in that world. Uh, I have a couple other people. Will Store, I remember sending him one of the chapters in this book, and he did not send back. Wow, good work! He sent back. I think this is overwritten, and this is a you're taking a, a side a path that I don't think you should take. All these kinds of notes. Uh, it's great to have people in a writer world who send back this could be better kind of feedback. So I really appreciate all of that. You're reminding me of something I saw recently. There was some company, I want to say UK based that had merged or was doing business with a Scandinavian company and the challenges that they faced in uh, the dialogue between the two, because of you have to say the sort of the national culture, 
that the um, the British person would give feedback to the Scandinavian person and go, it's wonderful, it's amazing, you're an absolute genius. If I was going to change one or two things, it would be blah, blah, blah. So the Scandinavian person would change nothing, not understanding that that was the, the velvet glove of feedback. Whereas the Scandinavian person would go, I mean, there's some good parts, but let's let's just let's just dig into all the problems <laughs> with this. Uh, I feel that I, I, I went to... Swede, I did a lecture in Sweden and I had like two days before the lecture and I was going around and I'm from the South. So like everything we do is almost all the way in that, like, well, how are you doing now? Might I interest <laughs> you in a nice biscuit and a drink? You know, and could you, have you ever, oh, this is a sunset like I've never witnessed. Like this is, yeah. we, we front load, sometimes 80% of the conversation <laughs> is this charm, you know, you know, like we want you to, this is just part of it. In fact, I live. I grew up in a place where, if you're on the road and there's two, there are two people stopped in front of you going different directions in their cars, and they're just having a conversation. It's like, yeah, okay, I'll just pull up behind this and give them like thirty seconds, and then they'll they'll wrap it up and leave. In Sweden, there was this this plugged into nothing. Like if I tried to chum it up or charm anyone in a conversation, it they were like, why are you being? Uh, a strange serial killer, scary person to be. And I had to acclimate to that very quickly because the small talk chit chat thing among strangers, not as emphasized as it is in Southern cultures. So I uh, can commiserate with anybody who's trying to do that within, in the business world. Yeah. Hey, I love the title of um, your, your podcast. You are not so smart manages to be both presumptuous and insulting in the space, of, <laughs> in the space of five words, which is, Terrific economy of language. Tell everybody a bit about the book of the same name that I gather preceded sure. it. I uh, yeah, I attribute eighty five percent of my success in the early days, and and the whole reason a hand was extended and said, "Come into this world of making content," was coming up with a title like that. Um, I had the title just came from I had watched. I was watching a lot of John Stewart at the time, and he loved doing the the little. Uh, turn where he'd say, ah, not so much. And uh, I was just, like, thinking all these different ways I could title. Very, It was also the days of uh, blogs where everything had one of those over elaborate titles like shit my dad says and, you know, awkward family photos and all that kind of stuff. And so I wanted a title that fit in that world. The other thing I wanted to do is I definitely wanted the writing of both the book and the blog at the time to always be in that second person you do this you do this this is why this happens you say this you think this and jay i Mac like that jay mcinerney like, i i do, uh, who who <laughs> oh, uh, jay jay mcinerney is uh often uh, credited with pioneering the, the oh wow this the second I, like I should know that the second person bright lights big city the novel in the 80s was, okay was okay the entire thing well is, i you do this you do that. i steal i retroactively steal that from him the, the, <laughs> yeah. the you and it really worked well. It was a big challenge to do that. And the, the, the trick of it, of course, is saying is you is actually, I'm saying, I'm talking about myself. It's the, it becomes unity through humility. You as everyone, you as the person who wrote it as well. And I, it does that thing you're saying. Like when you see that title, you're like, how dare you? And then either, either it's an inanimate object or something that you see on the internet, like how dare you? And then you want to challenge it. And then the, when the writing comes out, you're like, oh, this actually has a different take than I expected. So it's almost like that stand-up comic trick of dig it and dig yourself in a hole, and then and then win the audience back. It's it it plays in that domain a little bit. The um, the whole concept is you're 
the unreliable, you're, you're unaware of how unaware you are and you're the unreliable narrator in the story of your own life. Um, it came out of, I went to, I was in college to be a uh, therapist and I was taking all these classes in psychology and the things that really excited me were those um, studies that illustrated how we're, we have an undeserved confidence and it's, and if someone didn't tell you how you had messed something up or how you were um, mistaking uh, the outcome of something or you were having a problem with probabilities, you'd never know because you rewrite sort of your own history so that you're always a very smart and very capable person in certain domains. Um, there was one study in particular, and this is something that, this is what started the whole thing was Darren Brown, who often works with uh, Richard Wiseman and takes uh, psychological research and turns them into these mentalist uh, specials. He had one where you go on a college campus and you ask for directions how to get somewhere. And then as the person's telling you how to get to the commons or the library or wherever, two people walk between you and that person. And like in this, in his special, they're holding a big painting of Darren Brown and the actual study, it was a door. And then one of the people holding that object switches places with the person who was asking for directions. And then now it's a completely different individual that you were uh, speaking with and people just continue the conversation. And then afterwards, psychologists swoop in and say, Hey, did you notice anything strange about that? And more than half of the time, people have no memory, recollection, conception of the fact that something weird took place. And they call that change blindness. And those same researchers went on to do the invisible gorilla experiments and the other things became popular. Are you familiar with the invisible gorilla? I cannot say that I am, but I can't wait to be <laughs> oh, wow. with it. For anyone listening, if you haven't ever heard of this, check it out. It's, it's still on YouTube. It's one of those early YouTube viral phenomenons. It, what they do is they ask people to watch this video and count how many times the basketball players pass the basketball. And as you're watching it, a person in a gorilla suit walks into frame and waves at the camera very prominently in the center of the frame and then walks out. And then no one ever seems that a majority of people don't notice that there was a gorilla in the video, even though it, if you were not told to watch the basketballs, that's the only thing you remember from it. So where you focus your attention determines the reality you construct also that becomes the memory of your of your life. And then over time, this can become a very false narrative that you live on. I thought all that was stuff was super fascinating. Unfortunately, on long road trips and at parties, people really get tired of you for doing that sort of thing. Like, hey, you know, your dog actually, what he's doing is blah, blah, blah. You know, so I was thought it would be a cool blog. And I started it as a blog and I was just in the right place at the right time. Uh, it became very uh, viral in that early blogging times and i got a book deal and i committed it to this is going to be a book about what you should know about biases and fallacies and heuristics and i, I wanted it to be like a celebration of self-delusion and a sort of unifying thing and uh that ended up becoming a bestseller and just changed my life and so since then i've had a podcast where i just was keeping that momentum going and i've been doing that for almost for a little over a decade now where i have uh, every two weeks, I bring in researchers or talk about something in the news and just frame it in that sort of same world of the psychology of reasoning and decision-making and judgment. And uh, then over the last six years, I started to get obsessed with why people don't seem, why it's so hard to change people's minds and polarization and conspiratorial thinking. And and that's what led to the most recent book. Uh, what are your actual qualifications <laughs> that's great i haven't had that again we, let's do this the way southerners would oh that's fun that's that's interesting what are mm -hmm. your bona fides so um well you just get you, you have an easy command of you know 
advanced. I'm at the very top of my brain listening to you talk on on pods and and reading your book. You have an easy command of psychological concepts that are like well beyond common knowledge. You speak very authoritative. I mean, first five minutes of a recent pod, I scribbled down the following terms: epistemic crisis, information chaos, metacognition. Yeah technique rebuttal versus topic rebuttal with the assumption and obviously you've had listeners and readers along for the ride with you this whole time i understand that but the assumption that most people would basically know what you're what you're talking about so who are you and who that's a great question um well i went to school to be a psychologist before that i mean i had a very uh b- before i decided to go actually to get an education i um I had the misfortune that I tried to turn it into some kind of fortune was I had a was in a terrible car wreck um, that shattered my spine. And uh, I got a very small settlement from that. And I turned it into a uh, pet store and I had two pet stores after for a little while. And then eventually I burnt out on that really hard to a crisp and um, went to school for what I was fascinated with, which was psychology. And near the end of that degree program, there was a sign on uh somewhere on campus that said, uh, opinionated big Helvetica question mark. I was like, I sure am. And I went to the school newspaper and said, how do you do that? How do you, how do I, what do I do? And they said, just email us stuff if you want to write opinion pieces. So I wrote a really like sophomoric thing about Starbucks is coming to campus and that, that sort of thing. Um, but I was taking psychology courses at the same time. And my incepting moment was I read this we talked about this study where, and by now this may not have survived replication, but it was really fascinating at the time. Um, you, whenever your sports team loses, they have the study that people's uh, men's sperm counts would go down as a, a little bit every time their sports team lost. At my university, the football team had lost every single game, and we were like ten games in on this thing. And I thought of a funny uh, title headline, which would be. Uh, New research shows, uh, new new research suggests uh, sperm counts at record low on campus. <laughs> and I thought that would be, and then, you know, you back it up with like, it suggests that if, the, if all these things are true. Sure. And when I, I remember I was in a, 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 a Latin class and the professor said, have you seen this article? And he just told us about it. And he didn't know that I wrote it. And it was, I was like, this is something I could do. And I switched over to journalism. So my, my actual like bona fides are, I have, I got a, a degree in journalism, then worked in newspapers for a long time, then worked in TV news for a while. And it was while I was working in TV news that I started, I no longer wrote for a living and it was killing me because that's what I really enjoyed. And I took all my psychology stuff and said, this could be a good blog. So that's how I ended up in all this. The The, the reason I sound authoritative in any way is just because for more than 10 years now to prepare for that podcast, all I do is is read research papers and talk to scientists who work in these domains and to get prepared for those i'm always cramming for a test every week and it's led to being able to talk about it in a certain way i, I would never uh, propose that i'm an expert but i'm what my real skill set is the journalism side of things so yeah i understand yeah i i, I know the feeling I, I i often say that my job is doing a book report every every week every thursday night i'm like kids shut up Dad's got to read his book. He's got to test tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's touching on the your past and your involvement with TV news. The beginning of this book um, includes a story from your own life, moderating a Facebook page 
from that you're working at a Southern TV show. The weather guy, what could possibly go wrong? I'm just going to go on TV and tell everybody climate change is real and it's probably man-made. And uh, the facts will speak for themselves. Yeah. And instead, it blows up in, well, it didn't sound like it blew up in his face <laughs> so much as it blew up in the face of the guy who's running the Facebook page, which is you. That's about right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was the early days of how all this came together. I was, this is easily one of the worst jobs I've ever had. Uh, and I was a, the handyman for a motel for, for, for a summer. So this is Yikes. worse than that. I was managing the, this was back when you could be a web guru, which is one of the things I took on when I worked at a TV station in the deep South. And I was managing the Facebook page. And at the time they wanted to manage the comments and instead of just letting them be whatever they're going to be. And sure enough, like you said, the weather, the weather guy who had a, this wasn't just a the TV personality weather guy. He, he, he was hired with a meteorology degree. And I remember looking, asking him for, to see one of his textbooks and it's just all math equations. And de- seriously, this person had a real education in how weather works. And I think he had that feeling like, he he wasn't from the deep south. He had just arrived. He's like, oh yeah, it's really hot here this week, and I think you should probably know a little bit about climate change. So he told all he talked about that on on camera, and man, the comments came in of like, oh no, you know, like the liberal media and this guy is, uh, we don't want this around here kind of thing. And I thought it would be, you know, a good idea to do what you all what people used to think would work, which is let me put a bunch of links and to and explain this and put a bunch of facts into the uh, comment system. This, of course, made things worse. And I was just okay with that. I knew that it was very frustrating, but and I also wanted to understand what was going on there. And that was part of the uh, the creation of this blog and book in the world that I'm in now. But what happened in that story was the news crew was off filming a remote and they have like the van that shows that there were the the news and someone walked up and said hey who runs your facebook page and they just told them my name and they asked well is he at the station right now I'm like yeah i think so and he's like thank you very much and then he got in his car and left and so they called me uh, and i picked up the phone and they said hey i think we did something bad what has <laughs> what do you mean and like and they told me what i just told you and sure enough, he did he did come to the station and tried to get through the um the reception area and caused a big ruckus. And we ended up having the police come and add that uh, the station to their patrols. And I don't even I don't say this in the book, but it went further than that. The um the news director at the time figured out who this person was, found out who his pastor was. And him being a local celebrity said told the pastor, Hey, could you tell this guy to stop doing this? But it was very impactful on me thinking like, okay, things are starting to bubble up and be strange. So I can see that was sort of a a looking glass into the future of discourse that people would go, would leave the internet and take things personally over just, this was just a weatherman talking about the science of climate change. And that was one of the things that got me very interested in, okay, what is really the deep dive into the psychology behind all of this? And it, it informed a lot of my work going forward. Right, so that gets to the heart of this book, as many of us who would like to believe that we are fact-based, and that's a whole other, that's all, <laughs> I think there's, that that's a whole subject to itself, um, as many of us have been wondering for the last several years now, in your opinion, in the broadest sense, why don't facts speak for themselves? Why are facts, which seem like the simplest, most effective weapon 
in a rhetorical disagreement among the least effective and very often wildly counterproductive. Sure. And this is, you know, a book length answer could come after that, but let me, right. some of the things that, that come to mind immediately. Sure. I understand this. This is not something, if you think this and you're like, come on, you are in good company. The, the 19th century rationalist philosophers all thought that, you know what we need to do to fix everything? Public education. Like uh, if everybody gets public education, no more superstitions, everyone will have access to the things that the elites have. We'll stop arguing and democratic utopia will follow. Um, the founding fathers of the United States, you know, uh, they were like public libraries. That's where it'll be. Like everybody has a public library. Same idea. Uh, people like uh, Timothy Leary and the other uh, early cyberpunks when the internet was becoming a thing. When it, they, At first they were like, just if everybody had Microsoft and Carta on, on CD-ROM, we'll all be okay. Like democracy will, be, will, will prevail. But then the internet is going to remove all the gatekeepers. And I remember... Timothy Leary uh, had this whole idea of power to the pupil, which was if you just give people the ability to put whatever they want into their eyeballs, and it's not just three networks telling them what the news is all about, we'll all have all access to the same facts. And very naturally, we will all agree on what those facts mean. We'll all interpret them the same way, and we'll have this beautiful democracy. Um, that's called the information deficit hypothesis. It's uh, one of those old concepts that we now know doesn't uh, seem to work so well, but we still fall into it all the time. The CDC, there's a part of the book that was cut out, but I went into this big deep dive into how the CDC attempted to uh, deal with uh, vaccines before COVID by using these very pointed fact-only campaigns. And what they often found were people would update their their beliefs, but their attitudes would become stronger. So if they had a negative attitude toward vaccination, giving them more facts just strengthen their negative attitude, even though they updated a lot of their beliefs about how vaccines work. And the reason you can't, I'm not saying that facts never work. Facts are great. The It depends on the context, and it also depends on the values and the motivations of the individual who you're speaking with. The, the A good faith environment where everyone's playing by the same rules, and we're all talking about Let's produce a hypothesis and let's try to gather evidence and whichever hypothesis has the most evidence, we'll go with that for now. And I hope you try to destroy my, my, all these things are great. And sometimes we do that in domains like law. We do that in certain academic places, science, medicine, but the, we had to, it's kind of weird to admit this to ourselves, but we had to invent all that stuff because our natural inclination is to look for confirmation of what we think, feel, and believe at all times. and it's very difficult to admit to yourself that you are also doing that as the person who's upset with the other person who not, for not looking at your facts, because I guess the best way to, to like, look at this is to think of it in terms of motivated reasoning. Um, if you're not familiar with the term motivated reasoning, you, you definitely are familiar with what it describes. Uh, my favorite example these days is when someone's falling in love with someone and you ask them, what do you like about that person? They'll, uh, what, why do you, why are you falling in love with them? And they are tasked with coming up with reasons. They'll say something like, uh, well, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they, the way they cut their food even. And uh, the, this music they're introducing me to and these, these shows we watch. And, you know, it's just, you know, there's just so many things to like. When that same person is breaking up with that exact same person and you ask them what reasons are, you know, why are you breaking up with them? They'll often say, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they cut their food, this stupid music they listen to, these dumb shows we have to watch together. 
reasons for will become reasons against when the motivation to search for reasons for what the way you feel changes, right? And the way you the way you feel is the thing that's changing. There's a lot of great research into that where they have people uh they'll there'll be like a professor who's got a a, a thick Belgian accent and when the and in they have some classes with professors mean gives you pop tests and the other classes that same professor is very laid back very uh do whatever you want we don't even gonna grade these tests and <clears throat> when they ask people what they like uh, about the professor they'll talk about that and they say what do you think about the accent and if they um or if the professor is nice, they'll say the accent is one of the things I hate most about this dude. I mean, if he's, if he's mean, he's one of the things I hate most about him. If he's a nice professor, they'll say the accent's one of my favorite parts about being around this guy. So the motivated reasoning goes up and up and up all the way to if, and depending on the motivation you have coming into this, to the situation, that's what leads to you looking at all the information available to you and searching for, um, evidence that will support your existing attitude or will, or seems to align with the motivation you have going into the situation that aligns with your values and so on that feels true so you're doing this we're all doing this the the facts that the things we're calling facts are the things that are at the end of some process where that felt true this seemed like a source you trusted it aligned with your attitudes and it affected the world in a way that you valued and then you come into the fray with this other person and they call it naive realism in psychology where you're unaware that you've done all those things. It just feels like you're mainlining reality. Like you're going to talk about uh, gun control and you feel that you've gone into like the, the basement of your castle, like Gandalf and you pulled the scrolls off and you looked at them in under candlelight and went, aha, and you take a, a quill and write, this is what I believe about gun control. That's what it feels like you've done. Yes. But you, what you've been doing is a motivated bias search for information that supports your position. And that's your collection of facts, quote unquote. The other person's done the same thing. And when you enter into a, a conversation dynamic that's framed as, I want to win and I want you to lose, or I want to show that I'm right and you're wrong, you dump all of these links and YouTube videos and the other person that it feels like all they have to do is look at this and they'll completely see things my way. Cause how could they not, how could anybody see this any differently? It's so obvious. And of course that's what they're thinking too. And if you've ever like had a debate with like a flat earther and they gave you a, a link to a YouTube video and you probably didn't even click on it, but if you did click on it, I bet within like five minutes, you're like, come on, that is, it makes total sense that that's the intuition that, that you would want to do that. But what's missing from all that is how much of this work ahead of time was just justification and rationalization. And we not only do we resist this because it's more obvious from the objective viewpoint that that's what's at play, it's also something that will generate a reaction in psychology called reactance. If you've ever been a uh, teenager or uh, spoken with a teenager, especially as a parent, you know what reactance is. That's that sort of unhand me you fools feeling you get when someone tells you what you ought to be doing like you it comes across as i want you to x and just the fact that somebody else wants you to do it starts feeling like you kind of like you're being asked to do it at knife point you know like walk with me sir i want you to do this so you feel your agency being taken away your autonomy be taken taken away and oftentimes in one of these kind of argumentative frameworks that's what it feels like like 
You should feel ashamed for what you think, feel, and believe. And what you ought to think, feel, and believe is what I think, feel, and believe. Yeah. And there's just an immediate reactance response to that. And we can get into it, but there's a, um, this was something that was very prevalent in thera therapeutic domains. And they developed a system of avoiding reactance and not engaging what they call the writing reflex, which is that uh, inclination to dump a bunch of facts on people. And they came, they developed better methods for getting better results out of therapy. And in researching the book, I discovered all these different organizations that had independently, without knowing about all that, also developed these better methods for getting out of that particular framing and doing something completely different, which is going shoulder to shoulder with the other person and saying, uh, it's like coming out of a movie. Like if you watch Top Gun Maverick with a friend and you're like, what'd you think of it? And it, like, you ever watched a movie with somebody? And this happened to me with Top Gun Maverick. And you're watching it and you're like, this is, this is so fucking cool. Like, I like, I love this movie. This is exactly what I wanted it to be. And then I can't wait to get out and talk about it. And then you get out and do that parking lot conversation yeah. that you're getting ready for. And you say, Hey, what'd you think of it? And they're like, Oh, I did. I hated that. That was so dumb. And you're stunned that you were so ready to, to like, uh, hype each other up and then they see it differently, but you don't feel like okay i'll never talk to my friend ever again this is a this is a real there i'm in us they're them but you you all you very instinctually go into that uh shoulder shoulder well why do you think that and then they tell you what they think you tell them what you think you make them like it a little more they make you like it a little less and you kind of get in a little venn diagram space with them a lot of these models for better conversation techniques that's how they work like you don't try to win the conversation or prove that you're right and they're wrong. There's a, another way of going about it where you say, I find it very fascinating that we disagree on this. I wonder why we disagree. And that becomes the the new framing. And turns out we have an innate propensity to engage in conversation in that way. If you allow space for it. Right. That, the, that concept that you just spelled out reactants to me that's as good an explanation as i've heard for this continuing frustration that i've had and i'm sure many left-leaning people have felt for the last i don't know how many years at this point we all know about the same period of time we're talking about <laughs> here which is how how can our side i hate to use the word but for lack of a better word how can our side have a winning hand and keep losing and i think that is the simplest explanation for why is because for the side that prides itself on being the cleverer, smarter, more worldly, more educated, and for the most part, the facts will bear that out, we're real fucking dummies and assholes when it comes to trying to win hearts and minds, and very often, it's like, you know, when you're, when you're disagreeing with somebody, do you want to be right, or do you want to solve the problem? And it seems like the left's addiction to being right has enabled literally all hell to break loose mm -hmm. it's it's they call it uh at nyu they gave me a great phrase for this it's called they call it cognitive empathy which is there's empathy in general that we should all experience and i think the left is good at that but the, the left is very bad at this cognitive empathy which is acknowledging that other people have different life experiences different nature nurtures different value sets different fears and anxieties and yes different prejudices which is always going to be a problem and there's never none of this is about forgiving people for doing bad things or giving people free reign to put do more harm and put more poison into the world but if you want to change people's minds you have to have hold space and be a non-judgmental listener in a way that connects to their values and frames messages in their values structure and not yours 
if you want the conversation to continue, you have to establish rapport. And that means you can't communicate anything that will be interpreted as you should be ashamed for what you think, feel, and believe. And you can't communicate anything that says that it can be interpreted as I want you to believe what I believe. I want you to see it this way. Or there are other people out in the world, like these experts that want you to see it that way. That want phrase takes the other person right into reactance. They'll immediately push away. And in therapy, this was discovered, uh, there's a great uh, model called motivational interviewing that make, I think that'll make this reactance make more sense. You therapists were noticing, especially when they were developing techniques for dealing with um, alcoholism, uh, and later on it expanded into uh, drug addiction, drug abuse. They, a, a client would come in, the client already wants to change. So they had that in their favor. Like that's like, oh, this should be easy. This person wants to change. And they would note, they would realize in the conversations the, with the client, there's some ambivalence there. If you think of it on a, on a spectrum of attitudes, they have some of their feelings say, I would like to engage in this behavior. And some of my feelings make me want to disengage with it. I'm in ambivalence. Help me out. And the therapist would often say, well, here's what you ought to do. Or, or have you noticed this stupid thing you're doing? All these approaches that generate reactance. And when the person pushed back, they would counter argue uh, almost in a uh, reflexive kind of way. And what happens then is the person leaves that session with at least one more argument in favor of continuing the behavior than they had going in, one that they self-generated. And then over time, if there's like a, you can imagine like a scale there, the scale's getting, uh, being weighted more and more in the direction of the, of not changing because they keep generating more and more counter arguments and they ended up worse off than if they had never gone to therapy in the first place. So the therapist developed this con this concept of motivational interviewing, where you, instead of trying to copy and paste your reasoning into the other person, you allow their reasoning to arrive at conclusions that create counter arguments in favor of change. And you do that by, you know, opening up a space, like giving a person a chance to introspect and metacognate and being a, a mirror at who to the other person's emotional state so they can objectively when they when they when they to you encourage them in ways like I guess one good example would be if uh let's talk you see Top Gun Maverick again. I like I'm enjoying this as a thing. <laughs> Let's Please. say, what did you, did you like Top Gun? Did, wait, have you seen Top Gun Maverick? Uh, it was on my to-do list. We never got around to it. Okay, what's summer. the most recent movie you can remember watching? Uh, oh, I watched uh, that that piece of shit, uh, Uncharted, with my kids. The Perfect. Tom this Holland is great. And okay. Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. Okay. Uncharted. Yeah. Uh, so you've already told me that sort of the easiest thing is for a person to do, which is like, what'd you think of it? Ugh. Ugh. Like yeah. that, that's the easiest thing for you to do. You know, like viscerally what you're... Uh, attitudinal emotional responses. Now let me move this into that motivational interviewing frame by saying, um, on a scale from one to ten, yeah, it, what would you give it? Uh, I would give it, I would give it a four or a five. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, the and we'll do. I'll do this in two steps. All First right. is, um, why does why does four feel right to you? Well, I can tell you. Uh, pretty specifically because I don't care for more mindless action and the MacGuffin. And if we get the thing that saves the world, then we'll save the world thing. But even as somebody who doesn't 
really particularly enjoy action movies. I do feel like I've seen the same action uh, set pieces over and over and over to where I don't know why anyone cares about Iron Man saving the world or the truck falling off the plane or whatever. And I did feel like there was an overarching approach to action that felt novel and fresh and thrilling. So I can at least give them credit for originality in that specific area. Okay. And here's a good follow-up. Thank you for that. Which is, uh, why do why why a four and not say a two? Because I cannot say that I enjoyed watching it, but my appreciation for the uh, the achievements that I judged it to have um, brought it well above the realm of totally worthless movies. Okay, so this is just a nice neutral example, right? But you'll notice when you ask someone if we were just going to do one of these where like well you ought to I, th- I can't believe you gave it a five like i loved it like like do you not enjoy like just having fun at the movies you don't like turning off your brain you can feel reactants starting to bubble up inside you like oh my god what a dick right why would you why yeah. are you uh, you're taking away my autonomy you're not even interested in what i think really well and to take, to, to take that a step further i start to feel a tribal thing coming in and this is something i know i picked up on just spending a little bit of time with your work, which is when you say what, you just don't like having fun at a big action. Yeah. You're not just attacking my taste. You're telling me you're a kind of guy. And I often don't like that kind of guy. And I actually am kind of proud that I know I don't just like going and watching things blow up. Some of those things are better than others. And you're kind of dumb if you can't appreciate the difference. (laughs) Right. And then when I asked you, you know, to, there's this moment. I love this moment when you say to someone, "What do you think of this?" And it could be anything. We could be talking about the the Earth being round or flat. We could be talking about a political issue. We could be talking about a scientific issue, or we could be talking about this movie. If I say, "What do you think?" It's very easy to go, "Didn't like it." But when I say, "What would you give it on like a scale from one to ten or zero to one hundred?" There's this moment we often feel where we go, "Well, um, that well, um." is when a person's brain is literally switching to a different conversational context. They're, mm-hmm. they're moving to metacognition. They're moving into introspection. And that's the, there's a pause there. Oftentimes the person's eyes go right up. They go, you know, I you see them moving into their self to consider, well, why do I feel this way? I know what I feel. I can't help it, but why do I feel this way? And then you pulled very quickly these value sets that you were expressing to me, uh, talking about what you appreciate in movies, what you don't appreciate in them, things you've seen before. These are also things that are specific to your identity. And you're also expressing some group identity when just now. Sure. And, and if you're the, a therapist or you're somebody who's skilled in, the, in these conversational techniques I talked about in the book, you would repeat that back to the person without, but try to say it back to them even better than they said it to you because you're helping them like really form their, their true opinion on it. And then the big move in motivational interviewing was that I asked you why not lower, which is an opportunity for you to create an argument for having a, to like it a little more, right? You were giving me an argument on the other side of the ambivalence. And you told me something that actually is quite nice about these films. And if we did that enough, you might go up by one point. This is talking about a movie. So it's not one of these things where we're trying to understand the the truth of the world, but but that's the essence of, of getting out of debate frame and getting into this other frame, which I talk about a lot in the book. Okay. And I, I want to talk about what you just talked about, but first I want to get to this, this one of the most significant phrases, sentences that has come across my eyes and my brain in the last few years is you can't reason 
people out of something they weren't reasoned into. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is, as I think the reactance concept that you've introduced to our conversation here has put a pretty fine pin on what that sentiment is sort of getting at. You can't usually win an argument. You can, there's sort of like this, like there's this massive divide. It's like, if you're on one side of the river, you know, if, if, if like, let's use the abortion example, if we are both in favor of some sort of reasonable access to abortion, we can probably talk all day about what reasonable access looks like without getting angry at one another. It's when we try to, I don't know, people say pass the Rubicon. I don't actually know what that means, but I feel like I'm using it correctly here. <laughs> pass the Rubicon to, and see, that's why it should be completely illegal in all cases that, uh, that things get very, very thorny. You can't really win that sort of argument, in my experience. I've never been a part of a conversation like that. And yet, the point you make in the book, people do change. We'll use the example of gay marriage. I'd forgotten as recently as I remember the mid-90s very well, Bill Clinton who was considered a young, open-minded, thoughtful, smart, standard-bearer of the Democratic Party enshrined into law that marriage was defined as between a man and a woman. Fast forward 25 years, I don't know that acceptance of gay marriage is a mainstream Republican value, but it's got to be knocking on the door of it at, at, at this point. It's not, I don't think you're going to get kicked out of a Republican household necessarily for holding that view on average. Looking back at that specific example, I imagine you have how and why did people as a, as, as, as a population evolve on that issue so quickly and what general lessons might we take from that applied to other issues on which we might wish to see people evolve? Sure. Sure. Um, the same sex marriage thing, that was something that was how this book started. Uh, there were, it started from two things. One person came up to me at a lecture and asked, um, my dad's fallen into a conspiracy theory. What do I do about it? And I said, nothing, uh, you can't do anything. And I immediately felt like that was a, not the right answer. I still feel regret for that. One thing I didn't know enough about the topic to even tell someone anything. And I was just leaning back on all this cynicism and pessimism that came out of studying motivated reasoning for so long that I was like, well, you're not going to argue. It's the whole thing that you just said. Like, you can't argue somebody out of that position. They didn't re- they didn't reasonably get into that position. Uh, I think that that is a real dangerous simplification. I prefer to say you can't copy and paste your reasoning into the other person and that you have to acknowledge that you use justification, rationalization, and motivated reasoning to get to your position and expecting another person to look at the evidence that you're looking at that you interpret in one way and expecting them to interpret it the exact same way. That's where the ridiculous conflict comes in. You have to give them a chance to find a way that their motivations, justifications, their values can align with a certain way. They they could interpret this in a way that goes toward a shared goal you have with the other person. Oftentimes that shared goal is just knowing, <laughs> believing true things if you're talking about flat earth. But when we're talking about things that are more in the domain of uh, group identity and attitudes and values, which most things in politics are, you, it becomes much more complex and nuanced what has to take place there. And the other thing that got me fascinated with this was just looking at the polling. I was talking to a political scientist, and at the time they said the shift in, in public attitudes towards same-sex marriage was the fastest shift in public opinion ever recorded. And if you were part of the activism, clearly this took decades. But if you if you were 
outside of that activism, it felt like it just happened overnight. Absolutely. And the because the fastest part of the change took place over the course of about three or four years. Uh, and the the rapid um, buildup to that change was about 12 years long. And um, there's a great group, two political scientists uh, who I talk about in the book that researched all this, they found that almost all of these rapid shifts in public opinion take place on that same time scale. And it's a bit like something called punctuated equilibrium in uh, biology, which is long periods of stasis, very fast moments of, of change, and then more stasis. So it's punctuated rapid changes over time. And there's a deep and complex science behind how this works when it comes to how brains interact. But when it, same-sex marriage is a great way to get into how this works. So one of the major components of, of this is um, you can, if you're talking about what shifted, what started the shift in opinions with same-sex marriage, we often will go back to Stonewall as this uh, inciting moment. But it's important to note that, and if anyone is not familiar, Stonewall was a, a, a more or less a riot that took place. Uh, it was a very public protest that took place at a bar that was uh, friendly to LGBTQ people and allowed for like public uh, uh, shows of like affection and uh, allowed people to dress however they wanted, act however they wanted. And uh, the police would raid these places all the time and, 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 and hurt people. And this was just one time when people were like, no, I'm not going to take it. And it ended up with very active protests where people were like, I'll just do this in public. I don't care what happens to me. And then that spread, that was a, cascade where other people joined and it became too big to control and then became a news story and then boom, 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 boom. Um, but it's important to note that was happening every weekend in the United States. Stonewall was a, re was a recurring thing in different locations, in different states. There were all sorts of events like that, but none of those led to the cascade. And that's a very important point as far as it comes to how network science works. The and I'll get into that. I want to save that for because it's a long explanation, but I want to note a couple other things first. The another big component of this is something called the contact hypothesis, which is the work of uh, Alport. He has a whole book about this called The Nature of Prejudice. And it's sort of the, one of those like you have to read this book if you get to get a degree in psychology kind of books. And it outlines all the different ways that when there are people with very strong attitudes or they're in certain groups that are in opposition to other groups. They often don't actually have any contact with each other, not meaningful contact. And the contact they do have is at the front lines of a war uh, over what should be the law. And so the conflict they do have is aggressive and mean, and they just have these terrible, they start forming these opinions about the other side, which are not true to the majority of the people on the other side of the issue. When it came to civil rights and, and uh, other issues of race in the United States, contact was pretty much unavoidable. Like they, people still had to work with each other. They served with each other in the military. Um, there were people all throughout uh, entertainment who who would, you'd see on, on the screen that were people of different uh, skin tones and contact was in there, but the contact often was, you know, it, it was imbalanced because people had different power, people had different privilege, and it was a corrupt sort of contact that led to people um, finding evidence that they felt justified their prejudices. And so that contact had to go through all the things I'm going to talk about, but it was already there. With same-sex marriage, the problem was there was so many people lived in the closet that it was, you were having contact every day with LGBTQ people, but it wasn't necessarily apparent to you if you weren't, uh, you know, 
of in the know of, of what that even means. And so one of the first things that helped same-sex marriage and just LGBTQ rights unfold in the United States the way, the way it did was a movement to live openly. And there were all sorts of cultural touchstones that led to that being more and more available to people, uh, television shows and movies and, and uh, uh, people in all sorts of entertainment domains, uh, reaching people in like the deep South and the Midwest where people were way in the closet, but you're on, on TV, you're like, oh my God, like I remember as a kid, it was uh, the real world, you know, with, with Pedro Zamora. Sure. And then Ellen and then uh, uh, Will and Grace and uh, Brokeback Mountain. These were all things that were both contributing to and the result of this movement to be to live more openly. And at a certain point that reached a level where people were coming out in places and you would discover, oh, well, the, this person I work with has been LGBTQ this whole time. And this person who cuts my hair has been LGBTQ this whole time. The And I have family members and I have friends and I have people in my community. So there was this sort of shocking moment of contact where it's like, I never disliked this person. And also now this person is in a group that I'm supposed to dislike. This is weird for me. I feel cognitive dissonance. What do I do about it? And at that point, politicians will swoop in and say, well, here's what you should feel about it. And some will say you should be very angry and some will say you should not be angry at all. So that's all happening. So that's, this is on the side of what's apparent to all of us that's salient, as they would say in psychology. We know it's happening. We feel it. On the other side, there are things happening more in the domain of the you are not so smart stuff that I've been writing about forever. That's in the, it's called Cascades. So I'll try to say this briefly because I could talk, this is one of those like, oh my God, this almost was the whole book. So I have a lot inside me on this. <laughs> and please interrupt me if I'm going too too long with anything here. Well, I'll let you know right now. I have about three more things I want to talk to you about. We're scheduled for about 10 more minutes. I'd like to get to them all. So we can go. As, okay, cool. We we'll go as long as you need. Um, I'll, I'll say this very quickly. So here are my two easy examples for you to understand cascade science without having to get into some algebra. If you've ever gone to a classroom or maybe a restaurant and there are a bunch of people waiting at the door and you just go, well, I guess I'll wait at the door too. That's cascades right there. You're seeing something that takes a whole lot of uh, algorithmic uh, charts and graphs for you to, for us to understand deeply, but you already know what it is by intuitively by thinking about how this took place. What usually happens is, let's say it's a college classroom. There's nobody in the classroom. The first person shows up, They the door is closed. They don't open the door to see that there's somebody inside. And that's because they have what they call an internal signal that's stronger than the external signal. The external signal is nothing at all. I could just open the door and look. But some nature nurture, maybe they tr opened a door once and there was a class inside. They felt really like, oh, I'm stupid. Or uh, they just have a certain level of ang of social anxiety that's already part of their makeup. For whatever reason, they don't want to check the door. So they stand there. They start playing with their phone. Second person shows up. That person has an external signal that's pretty strong now. There's one person waiting. Now, their nature nurture might be such that they're not going to ask they're just they're not gonna they're not gonna walk past that person and look in, so they go okay. I, uh, there's somebody waiting. They must know something I don't. They start waiting. The third person that shows up has an incredibly powerful signal. There are two people waiting to get in. They must know something I don't. They probably talk to each other. I'll also wait. So you see what's happening here is each person that arrives adds to the strength of the signal, and because they're affected by the signal as it exists, and then they add to that signal by joining in. And so by the time there's three people waiting, it's almost guaranteed that every other person that shows up is going to wait. And you end up with like 20 people waiting to get into an empty classroom. 
and the professor might open the door at some point and go, what are you doing? And then they all go, oh, and they all rush in. So that's an example of a cascade. It also happens in the other direction, like when parties empty out and you wonder what happened. Uh, like you're all having a good time. And then like five minutes later, everybody's gone. That's the same thing. The early adopters, as they would say, are the people who they have work or they, they're tired and they want to go. But there are a couple people in there that they kind of want to go to, but they need somebody else to leave before they feel like it's okay for them to do so. So the first two people leave and the next three people leave and now five people have left. And there are people who are having fun, but something in them says, if five people leave, I shouldn't be here anymore. And then the whole party's over. That's a cascade. So the other example that plugged into that is the great Duncan Watts told me that uh, in sociology, you could to think of a, a very rapid, super big cascade that goes across an entire nation. Just imagine a person driving down, there's a, there's a road and cutting through a forest. People are driving down that road every day. And every day, a few people toss a cigarette out of their car window into the forest. And for years, nothing has happened. And it even, it even lands in roughly the same place every time, same kind of cigarette, all that stuff. And then one day, the there's been a little bit of a drought or there's something with the forestry department has changed the makeup of the forest in that region. Something has made the forest a little different so that the cigarettes the same and the spark is the same every time. But this time the cigarette lands in the forest. It creates a little tiny fire. That fire dries out the surrounding forest and makes it more uh, susceptible to the fire. And eventually you have a six county forest fire where and what's important in this example is that it was the same spark every time, the same kind of deliverance of that spark into the forest, but it never caused a cascade until the network was susceptible to the spark. And what this does is take us out of that tipping point idea of there being mavens or hyper-connected people or someone who is so, so their rhetoric is so powerful that they're going to cause a massive change. What it shows is Anyone can cause this cascade that leads to widespread change. It's, a, it's the susceptibility of the network that matters. And in network science, you can imagine each person is like a, like one of those chemistry models. They're a ball and yeah. there's sticks connected to it. Each person is the ball. Each connection they have to another person is that little stick. And in, in this is all in the book, but the, the, the reduce the complexity down concept is some portions of any network are going to be more susceptible to cascade effects than others because you need a certain mix of early adopters, a certain mix of connections. And what usually leads to widespread change is getting the strikes, as they call it, to increase in uh, likelihood so that there's so many people striking at the network in so many different places that somebody finds that lucky place that's vulnerable that leads to a cascade that saturates that that little cluster and then that saturation saturates the next and so on and so on so in the case of same-sex marriage that was what was happening there were all these effects taking place sociologically that eventually led to the point where there were more people striking at the status quo than there were before in more places and i had to at some point hit that lucky spot so that's the network science of it it goes much more deeper than this but those are some good examples to sort of get a framing of it so the the advice there is engage in the kind of activism that encourages as many other people to engage in activism as possible and have that activism actively strike the network in as many different places as possible and then generate a type of activism that is indefatigable and relentless but not dangerous to the point that it, it will be 
squashed by the system. It just causes the nicest spark. There's enough different places that you have more of a likelihood to generate a cascade. That's sort of the overarching picture of that. It's funny you mentioned smoking because that was something I wanted to to talk to you about. Uh, when it comes to the subjects of how minds change, the subject of your book, it seems to me there's two very different elements of this. Um, uh, there's the the things that seem charged with meaning. The civilization as we know it is at stake for many people when it comes down to abortion, gay marriage, etc. But then there's also things where collectively as a group we change our minds in ways to me that seem less than totally rational. And smoking is the best example that I can give for this. I was a smoker, a habitual smoker me too. for 10, me too. 10, 12 years. I started after the news was already out. It seems like if there, if there ever should have been a time when facts triumphed, granted people were addicted, but the day you find out these things are horrible for you, uh, Mickey Mantle didn't actually smoke Chesterfields before he went and hit the big home run. <laughs> Your doctor doesn't take him for his health either. Um, they're the worst possible thing you can do for yourself. They're smelly. They're, uh, you know, all the negatives that, that go with it. And they've known it the entire time. They lied in your face to keep taking your money while they killed you. Not only did a, I'm sure plenty of people did quit when that news came out, but many people did not even more insane my generation, I think you and I are close enough in age, came along with the warnings on the side mm -hmm. of, of, of the pack. Well, and I, I can understand the reason why still people people still uh, start smoking because they can't. When you're 15, you can't imagine yourself being 50. I'll deal with that when I get to be 50. You conceive of that as a person who is who is separate from you. But I perceive, at least in my world, smoking has become less acceptable. Mm -hmm. Smoking seems like it is way more on the fringes of society than than it used to be. I don't know if you get into this or not in the book. How did our minds change about that? It wasn't the facts that made smoking uh, become socially yeah. unacceptable or seem uncool to kids. And you mentioned a tipping point a couple times uh, speaking a couple minutes ago. That's what I instantly went to was the Gladwell thing sure. of there's always going to be some individual who goes, these things are bad for me. Fuck this. Crush it. Grits their teeth for a couple days. Never looks back. But most of us are kind of like, well, if everybody else is doing it, it must be okay. Hey, I feel like I'm the only one doing this now. I should stop. We're taking our, our cues from other people. I believe that's more or less what happened with smoking. It was a long, yeah, you're right. it was a long drawn out battle that it's baffling. It took as long as it did, but they are finally winning the war. What did that battle look like? What has that change look like? It, mm -hmm. it wasn't facts or our own uh, health that made us stop. So why did we stop? Shame, shame. Uh -huh. And and I, I this is part of forty five thousand words of the book were taken out in the end where they were like, dude, this book is way too long. So a lot of what you're talking about is stuff that was taken out. I I read so many books about smoking and and the stuff in this category, but it's easy to to. It's easier to make sense of it. It was not easy when I went in, but the there's a great study called the Farmingham Heart Study. I, I recommend anyone listening check out all the great research that's come out of that. They they just have this intense study where they have all these people in this particular town and region where they have to check in every so often and where they know everything about them, like they know all their social connections and in detail, like really, really know how their friends and family and, and work connections are in flux and how they change over time. And they know everything about their health 
like every little bullet point you could imagine. And it's wild to look at how a, we know from the research that a, if if you if someone you know knows someone who's smoking, your odds of smoking go up by a bazillion percent. If just three nodes out from you, if a person's doing something, your likelihood of becoming a person that does that goes up by a bazillion. Even things like divorce, like if if not somebody that's a friend that's your friend and not one of their friends, but one of their friends' friends divorces, your likelihood of, of divorce shoots up. Um, so anything that's behavioral, anything that involves adopting a new way of being or making a choice to say, I am or am am not going to do something, anything that involves behavior is in deeply intensely affected by the social network that you find yourself within or the one you move within. And when it comes to smoking, it's that information deficit hypothesis again. It just felt like if we just tell people this is bad for them, why are they still doing it? Well, what we need to do is create these campaigns where we just pummel people with how bad this is for them. And that's all it's going to take. The problem must be they just aren't listening or we're delivering it in some way that's hard to understand, but they got to just get the facts in their head and they'll change their mind. That totally makes sense if you're already changed, if you are if you already have the motivation inside you, if you already feel like, I, I don't want to smoke, you shouldn't smoke, it makes sense that if I just tell you why it's bad for you, then you will interpret that information and be just like me. But it's taking away, it's, it's, it's not acknowledging that you don't have the motivation that that person has. And that motivation is, the sociologist Brooke Harrington told me this, if there was an equals MC square of social science, it would be the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. If if the ship is going down, you will put your reputation in a lifeboat and you'll let your body go to the bottom. And this is all about ostracism and shame. It's about being a social primate. It's about caring about your status and reputation among your trusted peers. And it would seem bizarre that smoking would be one of these things, Right. But if I become a non-smoker, one of the things I think about, they call this elaboration in psychology. You never think about things in isolation. You elaborate upon them. I think, okay, if I quit smoking, what's that going to do? And you may not articulate this, but you have in some way intuited it. Well, I'm going to be that dude who's like, sorry, I don't smoke. And my friend's going to be like, oh, that guy. Or I'm going to be one of those people that's like, hey, hey, seriously, don't smoke in here. We don't smoke inside. And, like, and they're going to be like, oh, he's that guy. Or you're going to be after the concert or during the concert, you're like, everybody goes outside to smoke a cigarette. You don't do that. You are feeling all of that very, very strongly. And these are all strong motivations, the strongest motivations a person can experience to continue engaging in the behavior once you started it. There's a, a line, I had to look it up to remember. Oscar Wilde once said, uh, as long as war is regarded as wicked, it will always have its fascination. When it's looked upon as vulgar, it will cease to be popular. That's a great phrase to acknowledge the power of, of uh, social death versus physical death. The uh, In the book, I do talk about how uh, dueling went away. And dueling, dueling used to be a sign that you were in the upper class. It basically showed that you could kill somebody and get away with it. Look how fancy I am. But as soon as... Um, people could start becoming wealthy just by having like a factory or something. Uh, it no longer indicated that you were uh, some sort of noble class to be able to duel because rich people started dueling. And then it became like, ugh, everybody duels these days. This doesn't make me look cool. And then newspapers, as soon as that happened, started doing these, uh, these editorial cartoons that just made fun of people dueling. 
And dueling went away very quickly in, in about the speed of all these other rapid social changes because it became shameful and uh, open to ridicule. That was, in some places, they attempted to do that with smoking, but it also came about very organically that the messaging started to shift and what it became was, uh, it's kind of like veganism or uh, um, um, yoga or something where like doing it shows that you do care about your health in a certain way and you are, uh, you have a certain ethical and moral ground that you're on now and it communicates it to other people. So smoke, what changed with smoking was the motivation to smoke became the same motivation not to smoke, which was to show that you were a good, cool person in your environment who cared about things that were important. And this indicated that you were one of those people. It was like littering, like littering became the signifier, became an outward social signal that you were a certain kind of person. And the certain kind of person never changed. Like you were still desired to be a certain kind of person among your trusted peers. But smoking went from being an indicator you were that person to being an indicator you weren't that person. And what followed naturally was people said, oh, oh, you're going outside to smoke? You're one of those kind of... It became you're one of those kind of people in the inverse of what it was before. And that led to the rapid cascade of people saying, I'd rather not smoke. And uh, it still looks cool on Mad Men. I can't, I can't deny it. It looks cool when somebody lights up a cigarette in a movie. But in person, it's one of those things where uh, it started to have a outward social signal that indicated something else. And people's motivations remained I don't want to be ostracized or shamed. And it became a way to be ostracized and shamed. It went from being fascinating to vulgar. To, to wrap things up, um, I, I don't want to, I didn't make it to the end of your book. I don't want to spoil the end of your book. I don't think it would be possible in the space of an hour long conversation to do so. I just wanted to offer to you um, my sort of thought on, on how minds change going into the book. And, you know, I, I still feel the same way, which is it's misleading to even talk in that language. Um, People, you've talked about this a couple of different ways about how you, you sort of come to a conclusion and then you reason outward from there. And I always use the example of, you know, if you're not sure if you should stop drinking, you know, or whatever the, the ethical quandary is, when you talk to a priest or you talk to your bartender, you've already made your decision. You're just looking for the justification for it, right? That's very good. So, so when we don't change people's minds so much as we we don't change their hearts. We just get them to open their hearts. And if the, if our position is correct and healthy and righteous, when we do that, we will open enough hearts that they will see past their prejudice. And you know, this, that people can do the same thing to me. I'm not the perfect person who's trying to show you to lead people to the promised land. Would you agree or disagree? That's sort of what I've come to, um, uh, the conclusion that I've come to in my own life and, and dealing with people is that we, 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 we don't change minds. We just get people to open their hearts. Yeah. It's a, it's a difficult phrase. Like what does change your mind even mean? And even some cultures don't even have a phrase like that. Um, in the end, what it means is for me, you know, it's, I interpreted it one way and now I can interpret it another, or I, I had this only this perspective, but I didn't know there were other ways to see it. It's, it's this, especially when you're with another person, it's like, I, I thought there was this one perspective and there's, but I'm not also, I'm not assuming that this, that it's this other perspective. It's these two combined that makes this third thing I never even considered. We both were wrong. We both were right in all these different ways. The, the, I think, but I agree with you. Yes. It's all about 
holding if you it's about um holding space for another person and giving a person an opportunity to discover how much of what they think feel and believe is received wisdom how much actual experience they have with the matter how many other perspectives are there that you could imagine is really giving a person an opportunity to to wade into some sort of nuance and complexity that may have not have been apparent ahead of, ahead of the conversation and in the end yes the way you actually give a person a chance to reevaluate how they feel to investigate whether or not they have an accurate evidence-based uh um confidence and certainty or if their values are in the same order of priority beforehand than they would be after is listening your way to toward that and you can't brute force it you can't copy paste your reasoning into the other person their reasoning has to arrive at a new place and you have to hold space for that to take to to happen and the techniques that work always go in that order you know you first you build rapport and make sure you avoid reactance and that you don't try to communicate they should be ashamed or, and then you give that introspection it's it's space that another person is so valuable within uh, where are you on a scale of one to ten why does that feel right why not this one not that what okay you've given me all these reasons how did you arrive at those reasons what are, what what methods are you using to arrive at those reasons oh okay that's interesting that's good have you considered this this is to me feels like oh i would love for somebody to do this with me on any issue and you can do that i even advocate in the book that before you start a conversation like that have you done that like if we were talking about something like uh, gun control or abortion have you asked yourself why do you have such a strong attitude toward this where does it come from what are your reasons for it what methods have you used to arrive at those reasons if you've done that first it's much more likely you will have the a cognitive empathy going into a conversation with someone who sees it differently because you start to notice how much justification and rationalization you've engaged in and you give them that like free pass to say okay you're just a person you're doing the same thing what if we like did this amazing thing of saying we both have a goal we both acknowledge there's a problem in the world. What we're disagreeing about is how to reach the goal and solve the problem. Let me hear your input. You hear my input. What if we took, instead of we're facing each other with swords, we turn our swords toward the actual shared issue? And you'll get a lot more done that way than you will the other way. And what's fascinating about that to me, what's glorious about that is you will change your own mind a little bit too. It's just because the only, the people, the person that wins a debate is the person who doesn't really learn much because they leave the debate thinking what they thought going in. And there's a great, I'll leave you with this. This is a, my friend, Will Storer said, this is a, uh, he would ask everybody to engage in this once they, if they want to, if they're thinking about getting into an argument, um, engage in this little, uh, I don't know, exercise, thought, thought exercise. It can be very specific or it can be about everything, but let's say it's specific. Ask yourself, do you think you're right about everything? in this particular issue and if the answer is no then ask yourself well then what are you wrong about and if your answer is i don't know then ask yourself why don't you know and what can you do to change that this is a great place to reach that sort of foundational humility that you were wanting to encourage in the other party and if you both go to that spot you'll come out of that spot working together to try to have something more than what you had going in and it's pretty astonishing what comes out of all that uh, one real quick follow-up on that. Has all of this, your life's work to this point, left you more, less, or with this, this, the same uh, less or uh, greater sense of optimism about the future of our civilization? I, 
I find that I'm kind of a punk in this regard now because I'm so optimistic. Yeah. Like this whole project led me to feel, I, I think arguing is good. Like I don't, I no longer hate social media in a certain way that I did before. I just think that it needs, it's knobs need to be tweaked to get the most out of it. I no longer find deliberation and uh, this, uh, this polarization nearly as mysterious or as, as much of an existential threat as I did before. I do feel like there are always going to be problems in any like social dynamic and democratic domain where things can go bad very quickly. But I feel like what we're living through is more of one of these phase shifts where in a very Marshall McLuhan kind of way, this is a, just a different way of being a person and the we're not good at it yet. And we happen to be across that three or four generational spread that has to live through the between times uh, that we just get handed all these tools and we're kind of not so great at using them. We have to develop a literacy for it and a a new set of uh, a literacy for it, a new set of best practices. And we're all doing that in, uh, you know, the future is already here, but it's not evenly distributed to uh, borrow something from William Gibson. Some of us are doing better than others. I'm encouraged by the fact that there are dozens of organizations right now who their only goal is that there's something called the bridging movement. And there's all these like uh, organizations that um, either they're working with uh, platforms to, to create better ways for us to interact with each other, or they're working with individuals to try to encourage a certain kind of critical thinking that's now become something you need to possess. I don't know about you, but if I have some friends that are still just joining social media and they do all the dumb stuff we did in the beginning. They all they say things you're like, ah, you shouldn't say. They're, they're very cringy at first. But I think on an arc, that's the whole lot of us. Like we were all we we have, we are going to be looked back upon historically as being really cringy, and it'll sort itself out in a certain way. That's not to say that democracy isn't in peril in certain ways and that we right. need to work on it, but I do I am much more optimistic that we're gonna figure it out. Yeah, I, I heard somewhere along the way, and if it's not true, I don't want to know the truth that uh, the imme the immediate fallout from the invention of the printing press was massive disinformation. Yeah. Yes, it was huge. This is something Tom Stafford told me. Uh, I, I I need I, I want to say this to every single individual in the world once. He said that uh, he's a cognitive psychologist. He said that uh, I was asking him about misinformation. He was talking about the printing press, and he was talking about how the internet is that times 6 billion. But he said that germs were always an existential problem for human beings and living in groups. But then we built cities and, oh, it really became like a possibly civilization destroying issue. So at the level of the city, they had to develop uh, sanitation. At the level of the individual, we had to develop best practices like washing our hands and boiling water. He said misinformation facts who to trust that's always been a problem for human beings and groups but then we got this information environment the internet and social media and smartphones and everything that goes along with it and we will have to develop the multi-generational equivalent of sanitation and washing our hands when it comes to information exchange and we're just not completely there yet but he he's optimistic that we'll figure it out yeah, I think I am too. I think I am too. All right, this has been reassuring. Thank you. Uh, my guest has been <laughs> David McRaney, host of the You Are Not So Smart podcast and author of the book, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. 